The Incomparable Podcast, number 86, April 2012. We are back on The Incomparable Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Snell. And it is time to open another edition of our Incomparable Book Club. Today's topic is magic and books about magical things. Specifically, we've got two books that we're going to talk about that where magic and magicianship features heavily. And then we will probably have a little bit of time to branch out and talk about some other stuff, too. Um, joining me on the Incomparable Book Club tonight are Glenn Fleischman. Hi, Glenn. Hello there. Good to have you. Thank you for having me. Dan Morin. Jason, it's not magic. It's an illusion. Scott McNulty. Hello. Hello. Good to have you here. Uh, always a pleasure. Do you remember these books? I remember... The titles. <laughs> okay, excellent. Scott remembers, have... Scott remembers words on a page. He's I did sure read them. Page. We look to you for title information. And Serenity Caldwell. Hello. Hello. I am now speed reading, rereading through both of these books because it has been so long since I read them. Simultaneously? I've forgotten what everything. Yes, yeah, simultaneously. Right hands, so you're flipping. Uh, mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, I have an iPhone and an iPad. I mean, uh, uh, got to make the best use of the space. Good, good work. Good work. All right. So the two books we're going to talk about uh, as our primary focus tonight are The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern. Uh, this is a book from 2011. It is actually started out its life as a national novel writing month novel, which is very exciting. Um, and it has reached, has gotten a lot of acclaim. And also The Magicians by Lev Grossman, which was published in 2009. And it also actually got some acclaim and he won an award for uh, Best Up-and-Coming Writer from the Hugo Awards last year. Jason, and I, a, a little known fact, actually, Lev Grossman, pen name of Lex Friedman. I mean, this is not true. It's obvious. Oh. This is not true. Although he is in our business. He is, the, he is, I believe, the technology, one of the technology reporters. Sort of a geek culture reporter for yeah, Time. For Time magazine. And in yes. fact, wrote, I was doing some research yes. about, about when the iPad came out. And I, I ended up reading the Time magazine story about the iPad, which was by Lev Grossman. Did he say it was magical? But well, what I found strange about the iPad launch from Lev Grossman's perspective is about halfway through, uh, the iPad entered a strange fantasy world. Ooh. About and halfway through his review, the iPad got a lot better, too. Ah. All right. So let's start with The Magicians by Lev Not Grossman. The review we'll, I start, read. we'll start there. Um, and I know that people have strong feelings about this novel. Um, uh, but just to, to recap, beyond the title, which is The Magicians, as Scott remembers. Correct. Yes. Thank you. Scott has fulfilled his half of his needs tonight, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is a book uh, kind of strange in structure. I, I've heard it described by many people as being um, the foul-mouthed or dirty version of Harry Potter in that it is about a school for magic. It's in the United States <laughs> and not not in the UK. It's a, it's a school where people learn magical things, except they're foul-mouthed and, and drink heavily and have sex with each other. And other things that are not in Harry Potter. Um, it's it's uh, the story of Quentin, who uh, who lives in Brooklyn and is discovers there's this uh, by going by walking deeply back behind in a like a garden in in Brooklyn and pushing through st- uh, stuff. He ends up uh, very very Narnia like, very Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe like. He ends up at this school break bills 
which is the school for magicians. And he takes some tests that are peculiar. And then he is enrolled in this school and time is out of sync and he meets people and there's a whole lot of school stuff. And then there's a strange plot twist that leads to a whole other story about this strange magical world called Fillory. So, you know, I, um, I know there are strong feelings about this novel. Uh, so I'd like to, I'd like to hear what you guys thought of it. And let's start, I'm not going to start with Scott because maybe our discussions will remind him of things that happened in it. <laughs> Shake um, some memories loose. He can play along until then. And uh, start with uh, Dan Morin. What, what What are your thoughts what, about the magicians? You know, uh, I think I, I think I talked to you briefly while I was, while I was in the midst of it and found it, you know, rather lackluster to the point, I think at that point I was about half to two thirds of the way through. Um and I think a lot of my problem with that is that the characters are so alienating and they're drawn in this very stereotypical I'm trying to the, the book that it reminded me the most of, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I think it was called The Cheese Monkeys. Um by the uh, Chip Kid. The, Chip Kid, yeah. Um and so it but it's it's got that same sort of that's about like a bunch of kids going to art school. And so that's kind of what this reminded me of in a in a way is you've got all these kids who are really pretentious. <laughs> Um, and I think that's what bothered me the most about it. They're all kind of, uh, they're all kind of like layabouts and, and ne'er-do-wells to a certain extent. Um, especially Quentin, the click he sort of falls in with, um, and not in the sense that they're all extremely wealthy or whatever, but they're all, you know, they all do magic. And so especially once they get out of, um, out of break bills and back into the real world, I put quotes around that because they're like living in an apartment in Manhattan. They don't have to work. They have all the money they ever need. Is a um, magic. So, right. And so they spend all their time drinking and doing drugs and having sex and all that. So um which is it's not terribly interesting because there's not really no. a plot going on at that point. It's just these characters. And unfortunately the characters, again, like I said, I didn't they're not really likable. No, they're right? not likable. I mean, I mean, maybe Alice is maybe like you never you never get inside her she, head. Yeah. So. But so but she she's she's a mysterious of, other figure who I mean you, you feel never, I think you feel sad for her more than anything yeah yeah I but mean, the other the other characters I mean we meet we meet these these characters um, and they're older than uh, Quentin and you get the sense that they're kind of already they they're they've been corrupted by the school and they're cynical and and. Uh, kind of unfriendly and <laughs> and and and, and they and Quentin and Alice are are sort of like uh promoted into their year and so they're they're the younger right. ones and they're more innocent and 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 so through them you end up seeing these other characters who right. are a more you know they're kind of hedonistic and they're very cynical and uh they're not particularly likable and they've right. already got they sort of already have politics between them and there is history that's ugly of people who've loved and hated each other and it's uh it's but kind of the whole thing it falls into this sort of trap of of cliches in some way of you have these you know dissolute teenagers who think they're too cool for everything and like you have the, the oh everybody hates their parents right even like especially quentin's parents that really struck me as his parents being really kind of inoffensive and bland but he's somehow offended by that inoffensiveness um but it, it struck me as not really having a well-defined 
reason or you know like it just struck me as like oh god it's an annoying teenager you know and 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 maybe that's realistic but it's it's at the same time it just, it's so boring to read it's so dull harry potter went through that for an entire harry potter book and it was actually the, one of the more unpleasant things in the harry yeah. potter series is he spends an entire book being mad at everybody because he's supposed to be sullen because he's a teenager and it's you know, it may be realistic in one way, but it just kind of sucks because it's just like you're a jerk. <laughs> Why Books do I fiction care? For a reason, yeah. yeah. So, so Dan, what you said was uh, you were despairing, but uh, did you did it pick up at the end? And, uh, this is sort of two books, right? It's kind of like two totally different plot. Yeah. Movements. Well, it's it's like yeah, there's a there's a book at the beginning which is really boring. School. <laughs> Well, school, Quentin as a kid and whatever. I even the part, the sort of beginning where they get to Fillory, um, this this magical universe, um, even that feels kind of shoddy because Narnia. it is. Yeah, it is unclear, right? Like whether this is a pastiche on the sort of Narnia, Narnia and, yeah. and traditional fantasies or whether it's a actual honest, like earnest fantasy story, right? I've got to say something about that, because when reading this book, all I could think of was this is a kid who wrote Narnia fan fiction in high school, wrote like 250,000 words of it, said, well, I obviously can't publish it because it's fan fiction. Uh, let me sit on it a couple of years. And then a couple of years later, he comes up to it and he's like, oh, well, maybe if I twerk some names around. Hey, look, I've got a novel that just so happens to very clearly resemble Narnia. I think, I think it, felt, it felt like parody it to, to me. Yeah. It's it, not parody. It's so earnest, though. It's too no, earnest it's not. to be there's parody. No, enough, there's enough of a critique in there, I feel like, that he's trying to do that. I don't think it's a particularly well-executed critique, um, but he's clearly riffing off. But it's, yeah, it's so, it's so heavy-handed. It is very heavy-handed. Umber and Ember thing where it's like, and then at the end, they come and they always take the Chatwin children away and they have to go back to the real world. It seems so unfair. And I'm like, that is someone who read Narnia and said, why can't the kids stay there? You know, it's just this, it yes. doesn't add to it. It's just like this complaint. Yeah. The, the illusions are so heavy though. Like, you know, they talk about, you know, I think the older girl at some point, the older Chatwin girl at some point. And of course, anybody who's read Narnia, you know, thinks immediately of Susan, who is the one, you know, the one kid who, uh, is sort of at a later point just decides she's 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 never coming back to Narnia because yes. she's she discovered boys out. right she ages out um and which is one thing that many people are are uh, critical of in Lewis's work um but I think that I agree with Jason that this is this is intended more as critique or a critique or a pastiche or something like that uh, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it's parody because it doesn't quite work that way yeah. for me it's not funny enough to be parody to me not that well, parody necessarily no. has to be funny it, but like well it's not a it's not a parody of it's not sharp enough you're right it's not a parody of harry potter either it does feel like if you take harry potter and narnia what 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 really is happening here is he's he's trying to make some kind of commentary right while telling a story about sort of like the the how clean some of these fan beloved fantasy stories are versus sort of the dirtiness of reality and real yeah. people and real mm -hmm. life. And I feel right. that in the school scenes very strongly and in the scenes in the second half in Fillory, you know, I feel like he's making some comments on, um, on this idea of the children. I mean, you, you talk about the children visiting and the, and the, and the changes in time and all of that. He is sort of making a comment about that, especially given the fact that spoiler horn, <laughs> The uh the the bad guy ends up being one of the children 
who's bad because he doesn't want to leave. You know? Right, but the but the he doesn't he doesn't commit to it. My problem is that it's not just that the novel changes halfway through, it's that he doesn't commit to being either parody or critique and he's and that's why it feels like pastiche yeah. because it's wishy-washy bar- in between. Yeah, yeah, he borrows everything he can. I mean, the fact that he ended at break bills, like that could be funny if he was really trying to make a Hogwarts uh, parody, but he doesn't. It's he borrowed. It's like it's like oh, I'm going to make a little joke here and there, and occasionally I'm going to make a joke about Narnia or or Harry Potter. I don't think it's parody. It's commentary. It is saying this is unrealistic to expect people to behave in the way they do in Harry Potter. This is how they would behave. But who wants to read a book about that? Oh, well, that may be. But well, I mean, I and I think you could do that well. I just not sure that this was done well. <laughs> My thing is that he that he steals the framework. So he tries to he he makes some in jokes. He makes the reference, and then it's like, okay, well now I don't have to describe this anymore because this is just like Harry Potter, you know, or this is just like Hogwarts. I don't have to describe this anymore because everyone's read Narnia. So now I'm just going to go into this other thing and ignore the fact that I created something. I bring up all these things and all these in jokes and create different names for everything and sometimes wink and nudge about Narnia or Harry Potter, and then he moves on and you know. And we're talking about just those two. There's so many elements like brought in from every other book and movie. You know, there's Bright Lights, Big City, and the New York scene practically. There's, there's, um, uh, it's just, I feel like it, I think pastiche is the right word because I feel like there are 50 different bits and pieces of fantasy novels and magic novels and movies. I mean, I even felt like, what was that terrible, um, movie with, uh, I'm going to say this, you'll laugh, terrible movie with Nicolas Cage where, mm. um, Sorcerer's Apprentice, right? Which Nat- I saw. National and, Treasure, Con Air. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, Sor- Sorcerer's Apprentice. Uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice had the same feel to me where they're like, they're trying to reference stuff and they're sort of being funny and then they're sort of making no sense and it doesn't stand alone. It's like, oh, electricity allows us to perform magic except we say spells, except there's there's a perfect part that explains this book for me, which is early on, they're doing some lecture and one of the professors says, we don't know anything about the origin of, ma- origin of magic and he makes the it's turtles all the way down story and it goes on about the turtles all the way down reference to hammer on the point that we don't, because Harry Potter, it's obviously a peeve of his that in the Harry Potter books they don't really look at where magic come from comes from they just study it like empirical uh, scientists used to without studying the basis of you know reality or whatever and I feel like the same thing has come up here is you know he brings these things up because they're his pet peeves he gets rid of them and then he moves on just like he you know he works through the Harry Potter thing well there should have been sex and drugs and violence and weird stuff at Hogwarts well I've done that now we're going to go into the Narnia world and there should have been uh, you know this and that and strange gods and so forth and, and then he does well, that I wanted to interject that I thought there were the, the scene there's one scene that really stands out for me in the first half of the book, which is the one point where if I'm sort of like lazily like paging through it and reading, the one that made me sort of sit up is the scene the first scene with the beast with Great. the antagonist. Fantastic yeah. scene. Best yeah. scene. Which I think is one of the best scenes, yeah, overall. It's, it's original. Absolutely. Yeah, it's an original scene. Doesn't feel like anything else. Yep. It's really scary, yeah. especially that last bit where it's like, you know, they go through the whole thing and it's kind of terrifying and you're kind of frozen. And then at the end, like, they're like, oh, and nobody even noticed that this, like, student had totally died. <laughs> and you're just like, wait, what? But then he never really, he kind of cheats his way out of it and never really goes, you know, back to that aspect of it, right? It gets put on hold so long that I was like, maybe he just forgot it will never come up again. <laughs> but it did. It got, it, got, it does. It, it does. And I, and I, appreciate, and I think that that's the part. That's where the story starts to come around to me is towards the end. Um, I think it really took as far as they get into sort of this tomb, right? And they get up to the, you know, they find Ember and they start interrogating him. And you kind of realize that this is all a sort of a ploy. Um, And then they have to like, then they're, you know, they're, they're in deep crap, right? And they have to sort of get their way out of it. And it doesn't go well. And that's the part where I sort of like, okay, 
I, I kind of like that there's something at stake here and that things go really badly and that they have to dig themselves out of this huge hole. And I really sort of love the coda after that with the questing beast. For me, yeah. that that little short story in there where he wakes up after this huge battle and he's been asleep for what, like months or, um, you know, and he's his hair has gone white. And so he's taken care of by all these centaurs who kind of pity him. And then he has to go off and search after this thing. I loved that little he- bit. You know where that's a reference to, by the way, the, uh, the, um, again, everything is a pastiche. I like that part too very much. I thought that was one of the best parts of the book, but, uh, the infernal desire machines of Dr. Hoffman by Angela Carter, which a friend gave me to read. It's a terrifying and hilarious book. And there's a bit with, uh, centaurs in it that is exceedingly disturbing to any rational mind. And that scene in the book with the centaurs is clearly an homage to it without being anywhere near as disturbing as, Angela uh, Carter's book. I wanted to mention one other scene that I that I liked in the book, which is the scene where uh, at graduation they're all taken down into oh yeah level below level below level <laughs> below level, and it's like outside the magical protection area, and they all get tattoos that are essentially demons being inserted into them to protect them, and it's this ritual, and the dean is sort of like, I'm, okay, I'm going to let you in now that you've graduated. I'm going to let you in on some of the last secrets. I thought that was really evocative. And there there are a few scenes like that 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 you're like. Wow, there are some elements of a really good book that was not written. Yeah. <laughs> you know what the one no. that the scene that stands alone for me that was the best the Antarctica scene. I loved that scene. I thought the whole thing it was so gritty and it was so disconnected from the rest of the book. It was so it actually had I would say compelling sex, even though it was between foxes. I thought the you know the sex, this whole thing about there being sex and drugs and alcohol, and the book isn't very interesting throughout. And I thought that got more into sort of like raw elemental stuff than anything else in the book. And it it's a fascinating little snippet. And when they get back to break bills, I'm like, oh, that part's over. That part was actually really strong. Well, the part it takes them out of their reality to a certain extent. It mm-hmm. takes them out of the context, and also you're taking them out of their bored, disaffected human minds <laughs> and putting them in animals and things like that. And like, oh no, you can't talk to each other, so you can't complain about how bored you are. I don't know. It feels like to crib a quote from Louis C.K. Here, everything is awesome and nobody is happy. Where it's like you are going to a school for magic and you're still grumpy <laughs> all the time. And yes, admittedly. If he wants to make a, you know, if if Lev Grossman's idea is to make a a story about how magic really just causes trouble and makes people unhappy, you know, there are elements in there. There's like the parent scene um, when we get to see what Alice's parents, who are just these oh, these people, people who have, oh yeah, well you you take the this is what disaffected people turn into when they have all the power at their hands and they just go and into themselves and turn crazy. This book actually kind of reminds me of Catcher in the Rye, except with magic. And crappier. And cra- well, no, 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 no. Well, listen for a second, because like a lot of people dissed Catcher in the Rye because of the, you know, disaffected nature of the protagonist. But I would say the tone, or at least the tone that Grossman is trying to achieve, I think is similar to Catcher in the Rye. Because Catcher in the Rye is a very affecting book even though its narrator is a bit of an ass. Well, that's why I'm not criticizing this. I'm saying that, you know, comparing this to Catcher in the Rye is like, you know, comparing The Rock to, you know, 
the Tempest. <laughs> you yeah. Know, like, oh, no, they, they won't take place on islands, you know? <laughs> I mean, they have similar themes, not necessarily that they're similar tiers of literature. No, but, I'll, yeah. I'll, I want to back up Serenity because I thought that was the missing, the, the structural problem for me was if you wanted to explore what happens when you have infinite or, you know, relatively infinite power compared to other people <laughs> and what happens, the corruption. I mean, Harry Potter, despite some one dimensionality uh, of it throughout, the the conflict between having power and being forced to restrain it and the the mechanisms in the Harry Potter universe a bit that um, you know even though sometimes they're just presented as parodies of British bureaucracy there are checks and balances you must do something useful with yourself or sort of retire back into the magical world you can't go out and just sort of screw around and in this world the rules don't seem to apply and you wonder why more things aren't going awry and people have different amounts of power and he never explores the it's not a great responsibility comes you know with great power thing it's more like he doesn't explore the ethical limits of having no checks on one's actions. It's just, oh, well, we can't, we can do anything we want, so we're all going to collapse in ennui or become dissolute. Right. And so that whole last scene, right, where he's he's after he's mm. escaped from Philip, that was and he decides that was great. To go, yeah, he decides to go work in this firm. He doesn't really do anything. He draws a paycheck. He sits around in his office and plays video games all day. He has a really nice office that he's just sort of convinced people to give him. And I mean, I don't know. You sort of. It's a, it's a difficult thing, and I think that you know, I think the ending of this book is fairly contentious in some ways, especially uh, the you know very end of it, where he essentially decides, "Why the heck not? I'll go back with all my friends to this you know terrible place that we barely escaped with from our lives, because at least it's more exciting than what the hell I'm doing here." That makes no sense to me. Oh, well, I thought they had established some meaning, that they had meaning and resolve, and that's why he went with them, as opposed to, hey, let's go have fun. It was like, no, these were kick-ass people and figured out some way to scrape some meaning. And looking at them, he's like, all right, maybe there is something to do. I was going to love it if, you know, they had connected the characters more, but I feel like by the end of the book, maybe I just read it too quickly, but by the end, after he goes on the questing beast thing, it kind of feels like, oh, this I'm done with this chapter in my life. I'm closing off magic forever. I'm going to go work in an office and be completely, you know, just completely dissolute about this. I mean, he even meets up with somebody who was a former witch who's also working at this firm and doing nothing. And they have coffee. And it's and it's very much it feels like after that scene, after the, you know, the coffee or the beer scene, that he feels, you know, completely uninterested about anything in the magical world. And then two scenes later, he's like, yeah, I'm going to go to Fillory. Why not? Well, but there is a nice there is a nice train there because. The reason that, you know, the reason that that woman is also there is that she also sort of caused the death of someone, right, that she was really close to in the same way that Quentin, you know, put himself in danger and had to be rescued by Alice, who essentially, you know, committed suicide to save them. And so there's sort of the argument at the end there is if they gave our lives for us, like, you know, well, we better make our lives worthwhile. Right. I think that's sort of the that is the thing that sort of, I think, saves that upswing at the end a little bit. It's not so much that, you know. Oh, I guess I have nothing better to do than go back in this world. It's more of a, well, if we don't do something, then, you know, that their deaths didn't mean anything. This is also a story that is about in if you had to say it was about one thing, I would say it's it's about Narnia <laughs> and it's about the books and the concept. So even in the beginning, you know, he's pushing through essentially the wardrobe to get to break bills. He's obsessed with these books that he read as a kid. They end up going to this world because it turns out to be real, which I really enjoyed that part that, it, that the fact that, wait a second, Fillory is real after all. And at the end, you know, it's a, Narnia is a series and, and there's detail about the Fillory series too. And they keep the kids keep going back. Right. So I felt like you had to have them 
go back at the end because that's what it's about is they go back to the magic land. They, they just, that's how these books work as they go back. So I, I viewed that as at a meta level that too, that like, of course they have to go back. That's what yeah, these but not books everybody do. gets to go back. Right. Right. They, they had to have that last scene too, because if Neo hadn't thrown himself through that glass window, yeah. <laughs> he couldn't have saved Trinity. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. It was very matrix at the end, wasn't it? That was like yeah. a scene from the matrix. But they need, I mean, the cinema, I mean, that was, that was the okay. And then to get this, the option, I need to have this scene at the end. So it goes in the movie. It was, but I sort of, I don't know. I kind of liked it because it was, it was, um, I thought it threw off some of the ennui. It's like, you know, you know, it's, they could have ended on this uh, sort of, you know, br- the yeah, end of well, Brazil, dour, yeah. the end, yeah, like the end of Brazil, you know, oh, he's gone insane and, and, and he's dead to the world and we're still in a dystopia. It's like, no, this guy goes, like, all right, I'm going to throw myself out the window like, and I'm going to fly. I can do magic. Why am yeah. I here? I'm exactly. going to do that. And I, yeah, at least there wasn't originally like an epilogue where it's like, you're the, the bystanders walking by. I see this guy plummet to his death. From the um, I, think, I really want to pull the carpet out from did, under him. Someone cast a spell of silence over Scott McNulty. We have to release him from it. Yeah. Scott, do you remember this book now? Uh, well, uh, to be fair, I did read it three years ago. So, yes. <laughs> Oh, all right. Uh, I thought and, we all hit the mute button on you. No, no. I, I was just trying to recall any of these details. And all I remember about the book was the, the first part. I completely forgot they went to a magical land. And uh, I remember the ending with the exploding window. So, well, so there you go. I mean, that's you, the entire movie. You make a good point, though, that there, there really are these two these two movements. And, and you remember the school stuff. And there's the school yes. stuff. And then there's the magic land. And when I was talking to my wife afterward, I read this book. and I, And then I was talking to her about this crazy book that I read. And I said, you know, as an editor, I look at this and think, this should have been two books. This should yeah, have been right. – th- there, there was – it should have been cut in two, and then both of them needed some work, right? There should have been a book one that was The Magicians at School. Yeah, book, book one would have been incredibly boring. Mm-hmm. Well, it needed a climax. There was no climax in that part of the book. He rushed through well, it too. The There's beast, that one point where he's like, where he's like, "Oh, wait a minute! 14 months has just passed, and we don't know anybody. How did we not make any friends?" It was like, "There's that bit when they say that, like, yeah. how did we not make any friends for the last year and a half?" And you're like, "Oh, this is that dream where you wake up and you forgot to go to school for a year." Is what it exactly <laughs> what it felt like? Yeah. So, so you, you, you know, you, you can change the shape of it a little bit to have a little more of a climax, and whether that's the Antarctica stuff or it's something else that climaxes with them graduating more. More Quidditch. I mean, Welters. Yes, exactly. There, there could have <laughs> been something. Welters just thrown in as an afterthought. And I felt oh, like that God. would have been an interesting book. Which and then the second book, the second half feels like a totally different book, which is, mm-hmm. hey, you remember all that fillery stuff? It turns out <laughs> that it's real and we'll have an adventure there. He could have built more. Like, if you expanded the first part with school, he could have really interwoven that whole fillery thing a little more. So it would have been more shocking for the second book. Like, oh, my God, it really is real. But uh, he didn't do that. No, no. So that that's I, and so that struck me about it that that it just it felt like this would have I think worked better because it feels like two unfinished books if it had been split in two and been more finished. And I think because there's a lot of good stuff in here, but it yeah. does feel like you know, and this happens with novels a lot. Is you know you write a novel and it, it, people will either publish it or they won't, and it's not that that common that somebody will say. I like it, but it needs a lot of work, and you should probably break it in two, and you should do this, and you should do that. And I feel like this is one of those cases where it's just cried out for somebody to say, Lev, this is great stuff. You're very talented. We need to do some work on it. And it, it seems like that didn't happen. 
You know what I would I wouldn't compare this in terms of plot or or scale, but the um, that series of wonderful books, uh, the Blue Mars, uh, or, uh, Kim Stanley Mars, Robinson, yeah, yeah, the Red, Red Mars, Green Blue, Mars, Green Mars, 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 yeah. Mars uh, wonderful series of books, one and Mars, there's two Mars, one of the <laughs> purple Red Mars, Mars Blue Mars, yeah, Blue Mars, Blue Mars. What do you see? The um, the thing about that book's characters, incredibly richly drawn characters, some of them start out extremely disaffected and sullen or even you're angry at them or they're they kill people or whatever right, and there's an evolution through the book whereby they the live of, for like 200 years yeah that's a nice little gimmick that might explain book, but, why i but, never finished that book <laughs> the, the book it takes two or 200 years to live it's a beautiful uh, it's a beautiful series read it um maybe we'll do an episode on it but the but i mean there's the evolution of characters you can have disaffected characters like i thought the turning point was going to be with quentin and alice like you know they had the, they were both disaffected alice had reasons you know she had deep dark secrets and quentin was just sort of a you know jerky Brooklyn kid who just yep. didn't appreciate what he had, but then their magic. But after Antarctica, I thought what was going to happen is okay, this is the crucible. We've gone through a lot. They go through Antarctica. They both have learned more about each other and uh, themselves. And they're the only two who do the like, then foxes, some foxes. And they do that death march. That bit, the, one of the best moments of the book, the funniest thing is they come back in the, in the portal back to break bills from Antarctica and everyone else is sitting around and they're like, you two are the only idiots who did that optional voluntary death march to the pole but that's but i thought that was the crucible and then you were going to have this different thing where resolve and different and they were gonna be like eh, no they're just still the same kind of farty around kids that they were before yeah it would have been really nice to actually see them get to the point where oh yes we've embraced what we're doing and we're really invested in it and then you take it you go back to new york and you have the slow sort of degradation the idea that mm -hmm. oh yeah back now that you're back in the real world everything is sort of crunching in on you. And I think actually he has a really interesting motif throughout the book with the sort of the real world versus the magic world and going back to the magic world. I mean, not only do you have it sort of with the main characters, but you have it with the main antagonist, you have it with Martin. And then you also have sort of a weird foreshadowing with uh, Quentin's original non-magic world classmate, Julia, who gets in for like the first two rounds of tests at break bills and then gets booted out and is convinced that she's gone crazy. Yes, exactly. Because she remembers, even though they tried to wipe her memory about it. And so she just goes around and like, she wants to get back into that world. And she even assaults Quentin at one point and being like, yeah, I gotta get back. And, you know, you if you contrast that with the Martin Chatwin stuff, like there's there's the underpinnings of a really interesting book about the disillusionment of magic and what happens when you try and go back to a world that you can't quite fit into. And that like that could be really, really well paired with growing up and stuff like that. But instead, it's, for me, it just feels like a bunch of dissolute pieces that are kind of plopped down together side by side. And like, if you try and connect the dots, you can sort of see the narrative, but well, I was really offended by one thing in the book. I mean, really quite so, which is when, uh, Martin Chatwin's sister, uh, Who's her sister name? Uh, J uh, Jane. Who's this? Is Jane. Jane. Yeah, when Jane says, you know, you shouldn't judge my bar my brother too harshly. After all, uh, Plover, the author of the Fillory and you know whatever books, uh, was diddling him yeah, every chance he him, got. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, oh come on! You throw that in at this moment. We're supposed to excuse somebody. You know, it's like it's like saying, well, Paul Pot. You know, his parents used to beat him. It's like, yeah, but you know, I don't go and kill it. Uh, it's, it's the that didn't bother me because I didn't read that as being. 
legitimately excusing his behavior uh, so much as so much though, as tearing apart the the author and saying you know this author was actually an awful human being yeah, that yeah just but, wh- like but a, why it just seemed yeah, there, very out of place the detail does seem extraneous to me and i i agreed sort of it it made me you know raise an eyebrow just like you, you couldn't resist throwing that in or something but i mean it didn't bother it didn't bother me from the same way as being an excuse so much as it just seemed like a okay why is that <laughs> you there? Know, like yes yeah, i don't understand your point that in the scene, I mean, it's a lot of the explicit stuff they throws in is just seems like it's done for shock value. Like there's a yeah. scene fairly early on with Elliot, right, where where Quentin stumbles across him involved in some sort of, you know, homosexual tryst or whatever. Um, and, you know, that informs us to a certain extent about his character. But, you know, at the same time, it seems you know, unnecessarily graphic or it's just, just like done there, to, done there to shock people, it's, right? It, like, it could have been done better. There's a movie, Prick Up Your Ears, about Joe Orton, the playwright, and there's a bit where after he wins a big award, he goes into a, you know, a, a loo in England and men are all over him. And it's like, and that was sort of, it was a contrast and terrifying and useful and an exploration of the character as opposed to, oh, let's degrade this guy while the guy peeps his head up and then, oh, okay, now we know all about him. Let's go away and not talk about it anymore. Yeah, it just ties into the book as in general, where it feels like Grossman kind of got carte blanche to do whatever he wanted in this book. And occasionally he takes it too far. And there wasn't that, you know, no, no offense to his editors, but there's, I, it feels like there wasn't that hand being like, love, love, why don't you tone that back a little bit? So uh, to, if we if we would sum up the reaction here, it sounds like there's a lot of interesting stuff in this book, but that it's really uh, got a lot of flaws. There's a lot of stuff uh, to slog through to get to the interesting stuff. Uh, yeah, and for, it makes me really mad to think about it. I'm waiting <laughs> Even for weeks the, later. Anger. I'm waiting for, uh, waiting for The Magician's The Phantom Edit, and I'm going to read that one. Uh, uh-huh. Well, you can check out the sequel, <laughs> The Magician Kings, which is available in bookstores near you. I heard that, I heard that might make me angry. I, though, so I heard I some know. people say that they liked it better, and then other people said oh. that, that it enraged them, and they liked the first one and hated <laughs> the second one, so I really you know, don't know what to think. I, I haven't I, read it for that reason. I will say something for it, though, which we haven't said, which he's, he's actually a pretty good writer. He's interesting. Oh, yeah. I don't think his character is strong. But, you know, I don't mind a book that I'm not bored or just irritated by. This one actually may be sort of angry about it. And I think evoking a strong emotional reaction is actually, you know, that makes it worthwhile. I don't like it. I'm not sure I'd recommend it to other people. But I still commend him for writing in a fashion that actually enraged me instead of bored me. I liked it. I mean, I liked <gasps> it. I, I, I think okay. it's flawed, but I enjoyed reading it. And I think it could could have been better. Absolutely. But um, some of these scenes will stick with me, and I, I you know, I, I enjoyed the ride, and I didn't mind that the characters were unlikable because that was okay with me. That they were they weren't likable. It's true, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I, I I enjoyed it. I read all those Narnia books. I mean, I, it's no sin for a character to be unlikable. Is my feeling? It's a it's a sin for them to be unlikable and uninteresting. <laughs> um, I mean, and I'm not saying that's necessarily the case here. Um, but I think about, you know, just to, tangentially, people people often criticize, you know, like Mad Men for having like characters that are full of unlikable people. I'm like, yeah, they're unlikable. That's true. But they're interesting. Um, and and so you I dislike do. them, but you don't like dislike them on the screen. But you can't stop watching them. <laughs> the supporting cast in The Magicians is not strong. Supporting cast? Sorry. <laughs> I, yeah. I, besides... You know, the sort of few main characters. I think there's there's very few that stand out. All the professors oh. become interchangeable, and I think that's probably also a veiled sort of thrust at Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, well, and I was going to ask if anyone, does anyone have a favorite character, or are they all equally unlikable? Because I have a favorite character, but I'm curious if anyone else does. Man, I'm thinking, oh yeah, I would go with uh, 
I can't I can't remember his name because it was long in Russian. But the guy, the Antarctic. Oh, the guy in Antarctica. Oh, yeah. okay. I, I, think, I, think, right? I think he was the most interesting. He has very very little dialogue, but he was a compelling character. Especially, you sort of fill in his backstory later. Okay, go ahead, Glenn. Who's All right. Well, I like I liked Penny because Penny, oh, Penny was sort of inexplicable and crazy, and turns out to find the be the key plot element, and just sort of he he's he's, he's got he's his Quentin's own plot. nemesis, and yet he becomes actually vitally important. In the right, end. but he he has kind of his own plot. Like he's in a whole different story, and his whole. <laughs> you no, know, I'm serious. Penny's book the, would be very interesting. Yeah, because at the end, he's it like it would he's got, end really badly. <laughs> Yeah, no, at the end he's got fake hands and he opens his hands and he goes and he reads books for the rest of his life. Apparently, it's it's, it's a totally different life than everyone oh. else in the book. But but what I like about that character is his interaction with Quentin. I mean, basically, yeah. um, there's a there is a great scene where they, you've set this guy up as well. I kind of don't like him, and but I'm whatever. I'm not going to pay attention to him. And then Penny kind of like walks out of the school building and walks right up to Quentin and punches him in the nose, <laughs> and they get in a fight. And I liked that too. That it's like we're oh we're at the magic school, and it's like I don't like this guy. Well, well in Harry Potter it's like oh Malfoy, you better watch out. And in this it's like no, I'm going to punch you in the face. Uh, there was something about that that i like with penny that he was very direct very yes. direct fellow i'm just gonna really, punch you now yeah it didn't really make Boy, sense to me yeah i don't I know guess. about that he no, was but, but it was amusing he yeah, had his own story i enjoyed story. it i enjoyed it anyway he's in his own book yeah uh he's reading from the pools and the in the, the little place that's between the worlds uh okay let's move on to the night circus by aaron morgenstern uh, this is from last year uh this is uh like i said it's a national novel writing month uh book uh, originally, she didn't know what to do with her characters, so she sent them to the circus and then thought, aha, the circus might be an interesting subject for a book. So this is a uh, you know, a story uh, set in mostly in and around London, although not. it's also in Europe and the, in the United States. Um, there are two time frames in it, which is kind of surprising and interesting. Uh, Arguably three, well, depending on how you yeah, look at it. I suppose, mm-hmm. I suppose that's true. And, it, and it's basically about these two people celia and marco who are chosen as players in a game between uh two older gentlemen who are playing a a long game that we don't know the details of and and celia and marco are the players and so they're sort of set against each other in a in a game that that you know nobody knows the rules of and magic is at the center of it and 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 there's a creation of a circus and there are lots of circus people all of whom are doing magical things um and it's a it's just a strange and uh evocative and i thought really charming uh charming book and i i i liked it a lot so what did you guys think has anybody ever watched did anybody ever watch the hbo show carnival Mm-mm. A few you know. episodes. Reminds this, you of that? A lot of the tone that that's much darker and much more disturbed, but it also takes place at a traveling carnival and it also involves sort of a that's more of a good and evil battle, like, but there is also an element of magic well, and stuff to it. But I mean it, it's it's distinct, but the tone reminded me of a lot and, and I liked Carnival a lot, and I liked the Night Circus a lot as well. It sort of reminded me of that, but set in a you know, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell universe to allude to another uh, yeah, magic yeah, right. book. Right, it's this Victorian. Yeah. So you got the Victorian era. It's it's like the late eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds, and and so you've got uh, that tone, which is really nice, and you've got like English, you know, big English kind of manor buildings and rooms and things, and then the circus structure and the traveling circus, and there's there, there's magic, and the the magic that's done is interesting, and in that there are like kinds of magic, and they're they're 
very limited things that they can do with the way that they make their magic in the circus that they that they build and the, the and they have the different talents of the you know there's the the person who constructs the 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 clock that's at the circus it's just it's a uh, i mean there's a lot in there but it's and at its core too are are these two characters who are on a collision course with one another from the very beginning yeah and i would say in contrast with magicians the amount of supporting characters in this book is huge and i feel like almost every single one of them is very well fleshed out whether we get a point of view chapter from them or not it is it's really interesting the amount of sort of different sub sections that we go into inside the book because you get the overarch the overarching story is basically a love story disguised as a competition which is fascinating but you also have you have the undercurrent of the person who basically puts on the circus who is more or less unaware until later on that he is basically being played as part of a competition. But you have this whole section where he's basically planning how to build the circus and you get into his mind like a producer, even though you never even, you never get a point of view character for this, for this person. You only get him through the eyes of Marco, who's basically become his, his assistant in order to manipulate aspects of the circus but his his whole track and the track of the other sort of patrons of the circus are that that track is fascinating. I thought it was a beautiful book, and I agree with Ren. I thought the characters, <clears throat> even the uh, minor ones, were richly fleshed out, and um, it seemed both spare and full of detail. So you could, um, I mean, part of it was fascinating that you know, the it was a night circus, it was open at night, and things were either white or black often, and red was used as that theme to identify the people who were sort of. Uh, became associated with and traveled with to see the circus. Um, but, uh, and then red is the color of one of the twins hairs born at midnight when the bonfire is lit and the bonfire is multicolored. And there was just a, I don't know, everything was, uh, it felt like it was full of, um, imagery and symbolism, but without any of it having to take upon a specific heavy handed meaning. And even the fact like I always like books that involve, um, magic or even sometimes science fiction where the, issues are dispensed with really fast. So we don't actually really care what the basis of magic is in this book. It's not discussed. It's sort of waved away, but it feels uh, realistic in the sense that it's consistent and it arises out of effort and will um, in a way that is consistent among all the characters involved in it throughout the book. And I, I like the the light touch there. Well, it's treated like a craft. Yeah, craft, right. Everything kind of makes sense in the way that uh, certain things happen in the plot. And there's a lot of a lot of books you'd read and you'd be like, well, why didn't this thing do this at this point? You know, I was thinking in particular, I just finished this book earlier the, before the recording here. So I'm thinking in particular of the ending um, where, uh, you know, sort of the circus has been suspended while uh, issues are worked out. And our, one of our protagonists from the other timeline, uh, a young a young man was sort of being chosen to be the next uh, proprietor of the circus. Um, He's sort of going around and investigating why everyone is sort of frozen in the circus. And there's one person who is there to sort of greet him, the the contortionist. And so, so they can't, the question is, why is she able to walk around when nobody else is? And, you know, the answer is, well, she's sort of a magician in her own right. It's not important that we know the mechanics exactly. of Ah, she was immune to their powers based on this and this. She's like, Oh, well, she kind of knows magic. Yeah, it makes sense, no. and it, but it doesn't need the detail. And she was in the in the, it's the balance of the love story. There's so many balanced forces of sort of love and jealousy and loss 
and they're they're neatly arrayed. So you're you're just like, oh, of course she's the one. She's the one there. It was gradually revealed that she'd been a competitor in a previous round of this competition. And so it makes sense. And the kid who is sort of brought in as a prider, like his need for change and just the fact that he comes along, it's that happenstance. Things happen in the book for what seem to be accidental reasons, but there's almost a purpose or fate behind them. And you just accept that because it's part, I mean, the book is all about everything being balanced and whatever the balance goes off. There's a great scene, um, you know, relatively late in the book where the lover, Marco's lover, realizes that he never really loved her. And it, although not in a horrible way, she doesn't, you know, go totally nuts, but she had learned enough magic to keep both uh, Marco and his opponent in balance. And she unravels that. And then the book starts to, you know, the clock starts to spring, start to pop out basically. And <laughs> things start to, I mean, sorry, good metaphor, right? And they uh, flies all over the place, but it was, it's made perfect sense. It's like, she was sort of the linchpin is, is various people are in love and uh, the clockmaker being in love with, um, why do I forget her name? With the, Celia. Uh, with Celia. That's a, that's a lovely bit, though, the fact that Clockmaker, who I, you know, is supposed to be slightly older, I guess, and they have some kind of love affair, but it's not it's not a, as deep as the one with Marco, but she loves him in a certain way, and that doesn't become this strange, twisted thing. It's just part of all the mechanics of the of the plot. You can kind of get away with that in a Victorian set novel, too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, but, well, I think- but it's also almost an intellectual love affair more that's than it right. is any kind of physical thing, because he is, you know... He happens to be the maker of the clock, and then he also ends up being basically the voice for the circus to the general public who wants to know more about right. it. He's the number and one fan. Yeah, of yeah the I'm, your big, I'm your biggest. <laughs> and then he's and then he's killed. He creates him, boy. Then he's killed, and the clock starts. He's killed, and the clock starts to wind down. Right, and that yeah. is that is one of the that that is a affecting scene too, which I yeah, thought. Beautiful. Were, oh, it's beautiful. Well, can I just say I love. I mean, she's for a first time writer, she has a an impeccable control over the language in terms of except how it for flows. Her comma splices except for nuts. Hush. Except for what? Comma splices. She's continually gluing two sent in dialogue, she'll continually glue two sentences together with a comma, which is I think done for pacing, but it drives me insane. <laughs> well, that she's a she's a, a beautiful writer and and with the exception of her comma splices, which I, I think you might be able to forgive as a style choice. I think for it's, spoken it's, it's clearly intentional language. And so yes. that was, I, there was no way an editor was gonna let that many of them go. <laughs> It's like, yeah, you're doing comma splices, but really, I got to talk to Lev Grossman about his book. Yeah, you know, I, don't, I don't think I've read. I don't think I've read any first-time novelists. Uh, who, uh, very few with this beauty. The um, uh, what's the woman who wrote uh, the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms? Uh, oh, N.K. Jemison. Yeah. Yes, I just turned to you for all the names. Um, you know, what I, I uh, mentioned how much I love the book on Twitter, and Lisa uh, Spangenberg, uh, who's an author and uh, editor, she uh, front Twitter friend, she said that the book was actually um, workshop, not just on uh, nano. Rimo, but on uh, what's it called? AW. There's an authors forum that people use, and um, she was apparently a great participant in it and uh, listened to suggestions and is incredibly generous with her time now after the book has come out. So interesting that it it just it has that sense of having been um, you know you think it's someone's fourth book, but I mean I don't know if it's the first she wrote. You know sometimes people have the first, as we all know, first and second in the drawer, and the third is the first one that's published. But it does feel like a mature novelist. So I read yeah. a, a criticism of this book uh, from somebody, just you know, people on the internet. The people who don't like this book Ooh. seem to not like it because they say, "Well, it's all just descriptions of things, and nothing much happens because there's so much describing of items and colors and and details of 
of of things. Well, it's like so basically you know, this is this is what I'll say is if if what you're looking for out of a novel is a series of plot ev- plot points and events, yes, this book might disappoint you a little bit because uh, the, because yeah, a lot of so. the a lot of it, not all of it, there is a plot. There is there right. is a, clear, a lot of flavor. A clear plot, but there's a lot of flavor. There's a lot of describing of the scene and it's a fantastical setting and instead of saying suffice it to say it's a magic circus. Now, let's get down to the business mm-hmm. of the plot of the thing that didn't happen. What I like so much about it is is that it's very atmospheric and it treats magic as something that is special yeah. and, and precious, right? So so many of these fantasy books you read, magic is just part of, you know, everyday life. Yeah, no, life. there's and magic. There's magic. Uh, who cares? It makes me – I'm still a teenager and I'm still a bit yeah. of an ass. But uh, <laughs> in, in this book, it's like – it's magic. It's, it's, it's magical. There's no other way to describe it. It's just like when I – as I was reading it – and I am known not to like young adult fiction, uh, but I felt it made me feel like a kid again reading a book, which is a great oh. kind of feeling to have, right? Yeah, the, it's fantastical. Like the, yes, the magic is special, and when they do it, it's weird and elemental, and and sometimes it's whimsical, and sometimes it's scary. But it, it's never it's never pedestrian. It's never boring. Right. It's like it's always a bottle with their magic or something, you know. And, yeah, the magic is yeah. magical. Exactly. It reminded me a little bit of uh, I, I know a lot of people talk about the Prestige, which is a a book and a movie set in sort of Victorian uh, England. Um, but the one that it reminds me a little bit more is they came around the same time as a movie called The Illusionist with uh, Edward mm-hmm. Norton, oh. which also cool. has a beautiful. It's a extremely uh, atmospheric movie i highly recommend it by the way it's it's actually very both good. of those movies are underrated both of those movies are good they're very different um so, the illusionist i yes. think is is reminds me more of this the the tone of well the of, illusionist uh, is also more of a love story than the prestige it is. arguably you you know there's yes. something funny i was reading the book and i couldn't put my finger on what made it seem familiar and after a while i realized it reminded me of moby dick <laughs> Which may sound ridiculous. This All has, the descriptions, uh, no plot. The description. Yeah, the giant rich, whale at the that, end. That really got me. So the, it's that richness is that people read, uh, you know, I'm sure we all had to read it in high school. And I remember reading it in high school and thinking this is the most boring thing, which everyone does. Then I read it as an adult and discovered Moby Dick is actually hilarious if you're not reading it tendentiously and analyzing everything. It's a hilarious book, but it's also every chapter and all the descriptions of the obtaining of the spermaceti and all the rest of it. It's It builds up this incredibly rich picture. You're building up this inventory in the storehouse of your mind into which then the story unfolds. And it's a you know weird literary convention, not to making it away with it. I felt she did parts of that is she interleaved the narrative. So it wasn't purely descriptive, but there was a lot of it that was building up this storehouse, the powder keg of all the forces arrayed and a lot of detail and background and stories and then at the end it's just explosion 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 but you understood it all in that bigger context she created i love the moment in this book where um our two our two participants finally really come together which involves a a, a torrential downpour and a magic umbrella you yes. stole the scene right from my mouth that is possibly my oh it's beautiful it is a fantastic memorable scene and you know there aren't that many bits of it right it does a great job of ratcheting things up without spelling everything out right there's still some suspense at the end of it they've now identified each other but and he invites her for a drink right and then she goes Maybe some other time, and then yeah. disappears. Right, which is a great. I mean, Magic. it keeps sort of the. It's not. Uh, you know, the balance doesn't tip right in one direction or the other. It's sort of not even. If anything, that's the scene that that levels it. Um, and I think one of the things I really liked about this, in some ways, is that 
you know, I realized I found myself anticipating and seeing a lot of the plots points coming, but it's not, I think there's an amount of predictability in certain books that is not necessarily a bad thing and is kind of reassuring. It's like putting a puzzle together when you kind of know what the picture is supposed yeah, to be, it's on but the there's box. a certain joy in revealing it as you go and finding out how those pieces fit together, right? So I, I think that that, for me, like I, I could see how some of these things were progressing, but there's a satisfaction in and seeing it come together the way that you expected. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And to the description note, I would say that those individual tents within the circus are so yes. fantastical mm-hmm. that the description, like I'm, I am anti Charles Dickens because of his excessive description. But that said, like the, the description of each of the tents and how they work and, you know, Oh, this one is, is ice. And this one is clouds. And this does this. It reminds me there's a, um, San Francisco has a, has a night truck um, thing that happens basically twice a year, three times a year. Brooklyn has this as well. And I think it originated in Brooklyn where it's just a bunch of theater people rent boxcar trucks and make fantastical elements within them. And I actually got to go to one of these last year and like, they're all kind like it felt very similar reading this book and like looking at the the various tents to actually going to the, get that boxcar, uh, the evening market, because the the truck it was like one of the trucks I went to was a Brigadoon library only appears <laughs> once every hundred years or once every yeah once every hundred years and then there was one where they dipped items in liquid nitrogen and then they just smashed them so it's like it's all about you know the the mix of the fantastical and the and the germain and I don't know it was just Having having had that experience, I think it made the novel that much more interesting to me. Well, and the, the multiple perspectives is is a, a great way to get you to see the circus because we we have the you know the story of sort of like you are entering the circus and and you're seeing what's happening in the circus from from this perspective that's sort of outside and you've got the the story of the kid who is dared by his sister um, to break in to the circus when you're not supposed to go there and he. And he meets a girl and she gives him something as proof and then he leaves and you think, well, that's an interesting little thing. But of course, it's actually part of the story and it's in a different part of the timeline. So you are learning yeah. things that you later you, on, you you really start to flipping back and forth. You're like, OK, when did yeah, that take yeah. place? When did that take place? OK, hold on. And it sort of starts to dovetail, right? Like towards the I end. I had to go look back. You had to go look mm-hmm. at the dates. It, it gives you dates and you're like, what? Well, blah, 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 date, whatever. It's 1908. It's yeah. 1893, whatever. And then you realize, oh, geez, the dates matter. Because this yeah. girl that we met hasn't been born yet. <laughs> well, isn't it clever how they – I love the bit about where uh, – maybe this happened to everyone. I was about, I don't know, a quarter or a third of the way through and suddenly I'm like, these people are too old. Wait, wait, wait a minute. And then right. when you realize that, then she starts to reveal and then it becomes a thing and she sort of explains it. But It's um, it's it's in there if you look because I noticed it yeah, fairly early right. on that they're like – you know, we don't seem to be, you know, getting any older. <laughs> it's it, it starts to come in, and you realize yeah. that there's something, something very peculiar. And you have happened. that terribly tragic scene, right, with one of the twins. Oh gosh, who, yeah. Who doesn't want to. Who just can't handle, you know, everything being so magical and mystical, and ends up, you know, more or less. Well, she doesn't commit suicide, but she's sort of she's sort of in, drawn into. She's it, sort like of yeah, enticed into the flame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. being hit by a train. So yep. You look at the proprietor as well of the circus, not the proprietor, but the person who produced the circus. Yeah. 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 And watch him slowly go insane. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's kind of horrifying. Yeah. And then you, all, 
all in the background, you have Prospero the Enchanter and the enter- enigmatic Mr. And I love this, Mr. Victorian. That's also a very Victorian. Yeah. Oh, I, I love that. That is so, that's so great. Nice and, and Prospero is Celia's father. Who he and and she's delivered to him, and he's like, yeah, I guess she's one of mine. And he realizes she's got magic in her, and he's like, all right, well, that's good. And uh, and there's great stuff with him because you know you could do this as a almost lost kind of uh, you know there's a, a a man in black and a man in white, and they have a game that goes on oh, through eternity. But they're both kind of dicks. But they're that's exactly <laughs> oh, it. Yeah. it. So you don't have that here. And then Prospero also, you're like, oh, he's magic. And, and and he's like, yeah, but he kind of is trying to do something to himself and he makes it, it he makes and it. he starts to disappear. Oh, because that's the most beautiful, the most beautiful description. Magic. Marco, when Marco asks, um, why can't I remember her name? Celia. He asks Celia, says, what happened to your father? He said, well, imagine, what was the description? It was, if you take a glass of wine, wine. and you, remo- and you remove the glass, the glass if you yeah. did that in a bowl of water, it's one thing. But if you do it in the ocean, it's another. Well, he tried for the ocean. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> oh wow, yeah. And so he's 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 kind of a ghost now. And then and then Mr. A, you know H Alexander. And, you can call him Alexander. Yeah, Alexander. Right. I love that exactly. she knows his uh, name. And the you know and they have their game that continues to go on. And it's I, I love that. And that again is a way where where that's a, a thing we've seen before, and yet it didn't feel like. Well, it kind of comes out that to thing. just being. I mean, in some ways, it's it kind of ends up being. It's like nature versus nurture, right? Is essentially <laughs> kind of what they're arguing, right? Is that we, you know, Alexander says, "I can pluck, you know, someone out of Random an orphan. orphanage yep. and teach him magic, and he will be able to beat someone who you, you know, who is like naturally talented." I could pull this flower girl from in front of this opera house <laughs> and teach her how to speak with great elocution. Well, I also think it's interesting because Prospero is basically arguing for magic as flash to a certain extent, basically using it like to... Like Adobe Flash? Yeah. Whereas, but the entirety of the circus is, in a way, magic as flash, but with very different contours based on whether it's Celia's attraction or Marco's attraction. And the beauty of this whole thing is that, you know, as you see these two characters colliding, you realize that they're going to fall in love and you're going to have that moment where where the the old men who are playing their little game are going to be like, no, 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 your opponents, you can't, no, 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 and it, that's that's enjoyable too to see the sort of like, no, sorry guys, uh, we're in love now. Well, you know that there is. It seems you know to me it was one of those again one of those sort of predictable elements that I saw coming, but still you know savored nonetheless was that whole. One of you has to die, right? Yeah. Like in order for this game to end. Like you kind of, in some ways, I I was surprised that they don't like that Celia and Marco don't put that together earlier. Um, but maybe that's just because I'm reading I'm reading a book and I understand how books work. Right. Well, um, they're, they're, they're under the impression that there's some sort of resolution. I mean, a lot of this book involves them not knowing the rules and trying to right. figure out is this a competition? When does it happen? Is you know, how but it ends it... up being sort of a collaboration, and yeah. they're sort of skirting around it, and it's and in in a beautiful way, yeah. you know, sort of collaborating on these wonders. Um, yeah, no, I I I, I will say I really dug it. Uh, Good book, I liked I, it. A I lot. did like the I like the hint that um, Mr. A H is Merlin, right? Like that sort of Yeah, um, I, I I also took that away at the end there. Yeah, yeah, that was funny. Well, it's also Mr. A H been doing becomes, this a long time. 
he becomes less hmm. less and less uh, offensive as he gets more and more engaged in what's going on. So so Prospero becomes a dick and sort of fades away, while Mr. H becomes increasingly human and finally has like almost too much sympathy for it. It's a little unconvincing how much sympathy he develops. I would say it's the only false note, and it's very very slight. But I like the character. Oh, I like that last conversation with him and Witch. Yes. It's yeah. a good. It's a lovely little scene there. And yeah, he's still kind of a jerk, but you get the impression that he's just. He's become so disillusioned, no pun intended, with the entire, yes. yeah, you know, the entire history of magic. Yeah, I've been doing this looking a long for time. something new, kids. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's great. So everybody, it sounds like everybody has very positive things to say. My my thing about Night Circus is that I would buy that and add it to Uh-oh. my physical book collection, which is a praise that mm. I do not give to many books nowadays, especially uh, yes. newer books. So so it's funny that you should say that. Um, I have a very limited number of things that I recommend. My my wife is a librarian. She reads lots of books. She reads. She's in a children's library, so she reads a lot of kids' books, so she can recommend them. She has a limited uh, willingness to go along with crazy books that I recommend. So I try to I try to recommend her really good stuff, and and I absolutely and unabashedly recommended this book and said you got to read this book and 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 do it now. And that, so that's my equivalent of your, your endorsement of, I might actually buy this book and put it on a shelf. It's like, I, I, I actually went to, to trouble my wife and say, no, no, this one (laughs) of all these crazy books I read, you got to read this one. I've, I've been telling everyone they should go and buy and read this book because it's the most, I think it's one of the most beautiful books I've read in the last several years. Wow. And it's very approachable. It's approachable. It's fantasy, but it's, you know, it's got, you know, it's, it's got like, magic in it. It's like, it's not, it doesn't, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't require that you buy into a universe. No and dragons. Blah, blah, blah. You just, you can read, <laughs> there be dragons. Yeah. You can read it and enjoy it without having to, um, you know, learn foreign languages that are made up by the author. Right. For instance, Scott, I agree? thought it was, I do agree. I, I recommended to my wife that she read it. And, uh, uh-huh. last night she was very tired. So at 10 o'clock I said, okay, you should go to bed and I'm not tired. So I will stay awake. Uh, and so she took her Kindle into the bedroom and laid down. And uh, an hour and a half later, I went past the bedroom and the light was on and she was reading uh, The Night Circus. Uh-huh. And I said, I thought you were going to sleep. And she was like, oh, but I only have 7% left. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, all right. So the book that this reminded me of more than any other, um, we, we with the little time that we've got left, um, thought we'd talk about other magic kind of things we wanted to bring up. And I wanted to bring up Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, which I think somebody mentioned earlier um, by Susanna Clark, which is from 2004. Um, also a period England, you know, 19th century kind of story. It's, it's stylistically like that too. Um, you know, very Charles Dickens or, or, or I guess Austin. Um, and, uh, and I love that book. It's enormous. It is enormous. It might be difficult for some people to get into because of the stylistic choices, but I think it's a fantastic book. Yeah. And it's got a little – it's a little like The Magicians she's, too in the sense that there's a fairy – there's like a fairy realm that, that they go into, but also – and it reminded me of Neil Gaiman a little bit. It's like, it's basically like a history book of things that never happened. Yes. Yeah. yeah well, but it's also got strange whimsy in it, like the fact it that there are, there are magicians – but they're not actually magicians. No, they just study they're magic. Historians. Yes. How would anyone ever do magic? Magic. <laughs> well, and Which I love that hilarious. there's also a there's a weird sort of like there's a weird sort of narrator. And the footnotes. There are a lot of footnotes, but there's a narrator, right? There is a narrator who is not any of the characters. No. And who only occasionally just pops up and said, 
yeah, I read this once or whatever in this book. And you're like, who is this? <laughs> but like in kind of a in kind of a delightful way that never really I mean, it's never really explained or acknowledged. I thought it was like, one of the guys. I thought it? that actually is one of the characters in the book is the narrator. Oh, but... I oh, again, I read it like like Scott. I don't know. I read it a really long time ago. But I just I liked that it's not it is it seems kind of separate. And ancillary, like the footnotes. Yeah, and this is one of those, you know, a thousand-page novels. I, I'll put a I'll put a word in for a shorter novel that yeah. I recently read, which I know Scott also what? read, um, it, which is Mike Cole's uh, Control Point, which is a interesting sort of modern urban fantasy. You might classify classify it as, but it, a lot of it is sort of military fantasy because um, it basically involves a, a world where people manifest magical powers and the government sort of has put a lockdown on this. And so if you manifest in one of these prohibited schools of magic, you're essentially, you know, basically imprisoned by the army. And so the the main character, who is himself just sort of a normal run-of-the-mill army soldier, manifests in one of these schools and has to decide whether he's going to basically go on the run from everything that he used to know. Um, and a surprisingly good book. I had the pleasure of meeting Mike at a conference here to put in my Glenn moment. Um, and he's a super nice guy and a really, really uh, interesting fellow who's currently living in a terrible apartment so that he can eke out a living as a writer. But he's also cool. a he's a military guy. And so he has, you know, he writes this from a, an authoritative perspective, but it's in surprisingly engaging and fun. Yeah. And so I, I would definitely recommend it. So so I, I saw something about this book and and but the thing that's weird about it is it's called Shadow, Shadow Ops, Ops Control Point. Yeah, well they Control clearly have set it up as a yeah, it's, it's it's definitely it's, a series. It's just the way it, the way it's marketed and the way they titled it it feels like a video game spin-off or something which is what <laughs> it feels I thought like, it was. Yeah, it feels like a franchise type thing and it's and I think that's unfortunate. In fact, I was just looking at the uh um, he just put up. I follow him on Twitter now, and so they just uh, he put up a, the British, the UK cover for the book, which I think is immensely better than the American uh, uh, cover of the book. And which did he say it was supposed to have another title? Because um, they made him change on it. Twitter. I said, you know, I was talking to Dan on Twitter about this, and I said, yeah, the book is much better than the cover and title would lead you to believe. Uh, and the author said, "Yeah, the ti- that wasn't supposed to be the title. It was supposed to be uh, oh my goodness, uh, latent, really? <laughs> latent was the name that he wanted to latent, call it, right? And instead, it's Shadow, Ops, Shadow Ops Control Point, <laughs> right? So, I mean, they're clearly selling to a particular audience. I think is the issue, but I also think that the br- the British cover looks a lot more serious, and I think they dropped drop the Shadow Ops part for that. And it's just called Control Point, uh, um, which I still think is an even better title than Shadow yes. Ops Control Point. But I mean, it, 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 regardless of the cover and the and the and the marketing, I, I think it's it's a worthwhile read. It's pretty good. All right. Any other uh, magical uh, books that you want to bring up with our remaining time? I'll give a quick shout out to Joe Walton in general. I just uh, finished reading, among others, a couple weeks others. ago, which was beautiful and very Great. Welsh. So Welsh. Great book. Very, very adorable. That's We've mentioned it before. It's the fantasy. It's a fantasy book. It is about magic, but it's also a book. What it's about is science fiction. So it's like a fantasy book about science fiction, and there is, but there is yes. magic in it. And, but she reads sci-fi novels. It's, it's, yes. It's, it's, it's so she reads great. lots of sci-fi novels. And I am now mildly obsessed with Joe Walton. So uh, I watched uh, a, an hour-long interview with her. And uh, the interviewer asked her... Did you watch it through, like, a window? <laughs> I did. Stalking her? It wasn't really was an interview. I was just stalking her for an hour. Um, <laughs> and she... So the interviewer asked her, well, are you going to write a sequel to Among Others? And uh, Joe Walton said, 
Uh, she first explained her writing process where she gets contracted to write a book. She starts writing it and then she gets bored with it, writes another book and says, here's the book I wrote, not the one you contracted me for, which I think is great. Uh, I, I think also not uncommon for many of <laughs> And then, so she said, well, I could write a sequel to it, but the only story I want to tell is, uh, about when the main character, uh, ends up on the moon and that's, uh, 35 <laughs> years from now. And in order to write that book, I would have to create all the science fiction novels that she read over those 35 years, so I'm just not going to do it. All right, well, I have had a magical time <laughs> uh, discussing this with all of you. This podcast is <laughs> yeah. over. Yeah, no, that, that was, that was so, good. So so to wrap up, um, The Magicians by Lev Grossman kind of uh, got some interesting things in it, but sounds like the, the consensus is uh, pretty flawed and problematic. Meh. Yeah. It has some issues. It has issues. But we all. Uh, the Night Circus by uh, Aaron Morgenstern. Uh, everybody seems to love it. Up. It is going on my shelf once I have shelves to put things upon. All right. That is a ringing endorsement. And uh, the other stuff, among others, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell and Shadow Ops Control Shadow Point. Shadow Ops Control Point. Uh, all right. So we're going to close up the, uh, the Incomparable Book Club for now. Uh, I don't know what our next book selection is going to be, although the Hugo nominees should be coming out shortly mm-hmm. if they're not out as you listen to this podcast. So perhaps we will target some of those next. That but, went so well last year that we'll do it again. Yeah, well, you know, maybe that, that sequel to Feet will be nominated. <sighs> Good and then God. There can't I, be anything uh, worse than Feet. I will be there. retire from this podcast if that's nominated. <laughs> So, I, Jason, I'm. I'll step up. I'll read them all. But, except I didn't read. Except I didn't read feed last yeah. year. Well, you were you were smarter man. <laughs> you'll, than read, me. you'll read. I'll read I'm, all. Asterisk. Asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all except the one. Uh, so, so uh, if you're a, uh, a an incomparable book club devotee, what I would say is watch our Twitter feed or sign up for our Goodreads group, and we will notify you through those mechanisms about what our next book club selection will be. Yes, and in, in the in the meantime, read uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell or Shadow Ops Control Point or among others. You can get Jonathan Strange for three bucks. Look at that. And it's like a thousand Ooh. pages. The, the, the cost Jesus. per page of that deal is mind-blowing. Unbelievable. I'm, I'm tapping Amazon. <laughs> I'm tapping Amazon right now. We are. We're we're selling. We're That's moving right. some copies of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, right? It's true. What is it going to take right, me so. to get you into this novel, Dan? Because <laughs> what are you going to take? <laughs> to throw in a spare pair of tires. Low mileage. Low take mileage. it for a test drive. And I'll throw in some plots as well. Ooh. There we go. Ooh. One Ooh. click for me. I'm done. The test drive is the sample. The Kindle sample. Right. Clearly. Throw in some plots. Extra. And some floor mats, right? Give it a nice wash. Simonized. Yeah. And how about some footnotes? Oh, oh! Ooh. All the footnotes in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Neural come for free. <laughs> if you had to pay separate for those, you. that would draw you. I'd probably drive you a little bit nuts. Yeah. Did we fade slowly to the yeah, after dark portion without yeah. ever realizing it? <laughs> no, no. I'm, 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 I'm positioned to say goodbye. Actually. So. Until then, whenever that time is, when we reconvene the Incomparable Book Club, I would like to thank my book club participants for, again, a delightful and magical time. Serenity Caldwell, thank you very much for joining us from your floating carpet high above Los Angeles, where you are currently living with your magical cat. (laughs) 
Thank you. And hopefully I will magically be in Boston the next time we have a book club podcast. That's not use magic because that would be a lot faster than driving. Yes. That's how I'm getting there in two days. Good. Excellent. Uh, Glenn Fleischman from his, uh, his bunker in Seattle, but right in the back, there's a door that goes to Fillory. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you. From a thousand feet below the surface of the earth, I thank you for outglenning me in this episode. Watch out for the lava men. No. Dan Morin, um, I insert magic thing here. Thanks for being <laughs> wow, here. Wow, you always, you always <laughs> run out of inspiration when it gets to me. Uh, just really, if I had a door to Fillory in, my, in the back of my room, I would brick it over. <laughs> but the beast would come and destroy you, then. No, that's what the bricks are for. Oh, I see. Oh. Are they magic that's bricks? That's what the bricks are for. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Why would you use non-magic bricks? Uh, Why would you get a job and earn money when you can just make all your money with mm. magic? Bricks. And Scott McNulty, I thank you for being here, although you had far mu- too much description and not enough plot. That is often commenters on Amazon.com agree with you. Yes. Also, you had many jokes. <laughs> yes. Air quote jokes. <laughs> and I couldn't, and there was yes. a lot of silence from me. I provided a lot of silence, so... Yes, thank you. Thank you for providing both your silence and your insight about the parts of the books that you could remember. Hey, you know, I, I read a lot of things, people. I know, I, I can't remember them all. You wouldn't want to. No. That's why your book amnesia saves you. you saves exactly. your sanity. Perhaps I have a curse of some kind. When I went to Fillory, could be magic. Yes, yes. magic, real magic. magic. Magic is to blame for everything. It is. It is. Scott is Scott is actually an enchanted book who talks. <laughs> I'm an enchanted e-reader. <laughs> That's Ooh. no, you're an enchanted book, but you've been uh, you're being punished. Oh, captured uh-huh. in an e-reader. You've been trapped in uh, the body of an e-reader. Exactly. That's this it. Is- All right. Closing up the incomparable book club. Then I'm Jason Snell, your host. Until next time on the incomparable. Thanks for listening. This is probably the first new book in a while that I would consider actually buying physically and putting it on my my shelf, of which is very limited right now since, yeah. You're uh, basically so a homeless person. So I'm basically a homeless person. I'm living out of boxes. Yeah. We prefer the term hobo. <laughs> You know, you know, Glenn. It's a, it's funny you should mention Moby Dick because what is that? Herman Melville's great granddaughter was my English. Te- no, I'm lying. Just, <laughs> just, just, like, yeah. You just, just got Glenn. Glenn. Oh, you were. You Glenn. got me. You got me. You've out, Glenn. No, listen, listen. The Moby Dick. Glenn. So Moby Go Dick. ahead, Moby Dick. Moby Dick. You say, except for her comma splices. That drives me nuts. Hush. Except for what? Comma splices. She's continually gluing two sent in dialogue. She'll continually glue two sentences together with a comma. What's the word you're saying? Hummus places? Hummus places, yes. Yeah, I, hate I don't know places. what that is. A comma they're talking. A comma splice. Comma hummus. Splice. You're, you're a writer, comma, you should know this. splices. It's when, it's when you insert a comma when you should have a. a, a oh, period, I'm sorry. I thought you were saying, talking about like Baba Ganoush. I thought you said hummus <laughs> places. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, hummus places. There, there is actually, that's one of the less Pizza traveled Pizza tents Pizza. at the surface, <laughs> is the hummus place. Yes. I would not be surprised. It's, it's black hummus or white hummus. It's not appealing.